don't cry about it, pray. And I was trying to do that. In the black community, there still is stigma towards mental health. There's times at work that I would have anxiety attacks back to back to back. I always tell my therapist, I'll pay my rent first and then my therapy second and I'll figure out everything else. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome into The Debrief. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. The impact of COVID-19 on mental health has been catastrophic. Beyond the suffering from the virus itself, health experts say anxiety and depression have grown exponentially because of other stressors like job loss, remote learning, remote working, and all the complex and ever-changing restrictions we all face. But there's another stressor that also needs to be addressed, racial trauma. In the week following the murder of George Floyd, New York City's official mental health hotline saw a 10% spike in calls, texts, and web chats, and that's on top of the already higher volume sparked by the pandemic. And complicating this need is a combination of factors that make it more challenging for people of color to get the professional help that they desire. Here's News Force Checky Beckford with a closer look. Sophia Muhammad can smile again. You're making me laugh. A far cry from earlier this year. I was trying to just grin and bear and just be the strong person my mom raised me to be. Like, you know, don't cry about it, pray. And I was trying to do that. But patients were dying from COVID at the nursing home where she works as a nurse's aide. And an antibody test showed she'd contracted the virus without even knowing it. Coming home one day, I just, I broke down. Try not to cry now. Um, I broke down. It was hard. So hard, Sophia couldn't do her job. It was times at work that I would have anxiety attacks back to back to back. She's hardly alone. More than 40% of people report struggling with mental health issues from the pandemic. And calls to the National Alliance on Mental Health of NYC have jumped 60% since March. But seeking help, not so easy for Sophia, who's felt misunderstood by white therapists. It just didn't mesh. I just didn't, they didn't understand me. They didn't understand where my culture, where I came from, why I'm a certain way. You know, they thought I was just being angry. Just having someone who looks like them kind of creates a layer of safety and trust because they're like, you you probably get it, you know, because you're black. But psychologists like Dr. Kathleen Isaac are in critically short supply. Only 4% of psychologists nationwide are black, according to the American Psychological Association. That has black patients scrambling. There's so many people reaching out and it's like, I'm full. I can't. You know, like I don't have the capacity. My colleagues, when I think like of wanting to refer to them, they're also at capacity. Some barriers to help are insidious. A study in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior found New Yorkers with, quote, black sounding names and voices were less likely to have their calls returned by psychotherapists. Compounding all of this, the death of George Floyd in May and the ensuing racial unrest. For Sophia, there was new anxiety and fear about her boyfriend's safety. I would literally sit by the window, like 
every morning and every night just to see like if he went to the store okay or if he's going to work or if anything happened like it was so much it's not healthy it's not healthy to watch people die in real time for Imani White Anigboro a mom business owner and freelance art teacher this summer was too much those things are all happening at the same time and it's a lot Imani who suffers from depression also had to confront another reality that is a barrier for many black people her insurance doesn't cover mental health services. I needed to get the money together again. I'm an entrepreneur and I also freelance doing other things. So, you know, making sure the money was right. I always tell my therapist I'll pay my rent first and then my therapy second and I'll figure out everything else. So White Anigboro had to save up hundreds of dollars to get the help she needed. And today she preaches the benefits of professional assistance. God is great and so is my therapist too. <laughs> Let's continue this conversation now and welcome in Dana Collins, a licensed counseling psychologist, the president of the New York Association of Black Psychologists. Dana, we're so appreciative of your time and, and to bring your expertise into the fold here. And let's start with this. We, we talk about this increase in need for mental help, mental health issues because of the pandemic and then the racial trauma after the death of George Floyd. Mm. Have you seen in your work a significant increase in calls and an uptick like we are hearing from around the rest of the country. Yes, let me first just briefly say thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk with the community and give some information and, and share a little bit about what's what's happening with mental health. But the short answer is yes. And I've seen the calls and requests happen in a number of different ways. So I've had an increasing number of colleagues reached out to me asking either if I can take on a new client who's having some trouble coping or if I can give a referral, particularly to a black psychologist. And this is a little bit of a side note that I'm sure we'll get to later, but it's really difficult to find black psychologists, even pre-COVID, even pre-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But there have been countless times when I've reached out to a colleague to see if they can take on a client. And they tell me, well, you know, because of the pandemic, because of all this anti-Blackness, this social unrest, I really can't take on any more people. I, I have too many. And then also New York Association of Black Psychologists has uh, gotten an increased number, more and more requests from both individuals and organizations asking us to do programming. You know, can you do a workshop for us? Can you do a healing circle? And, you know, on the one way, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful that people are in touch enough with their pain and their reactions that they realize that they need help. It's great that they are, you know, giving their, themselves permission to ask for help. But on the other hand, it's, it's a real challenge to meet the need. There are aren't enough of us a lot of the time. How do you account for that shortage? Black psychologists make up just 4% mm -hmm. of psychologists nationwide, according to the American Psychological Association. Yes, that that is an issue. And there are a lot of contributors to that. So it often starts with opportunities for Black people accessing 
higher education. In general, there, there's less opportunity to access that. And even if there is opportunity, there might be some reluctance, especially because psychology, a lot of psychology programs might be very homogenous, very white looking, a lot of white professors and other students. And that doesn't necessarily look encouraging or attractive to many prospective Black students. That might feel very, very isolating. Another thing could have to do with stigma. In the Black community, there's still, and it's, it's improving quite a lot, but there still is stigma against, uh, towards mental health, towards acknowledging it as something that's real and that's it's something that needs to be addressed. So there are a number of things from access to attitudes about mental health that account or lead to this shortage, but it, it causes a real problem for people who need the help. And also it, it causes a problem for the psychologists themselves. You know, there is, this isn't something that's talked about a lot of the time, but it's more pressure on us and the, the increased pressure on us can lead to burnout and which can lead to not being at our best for not only ourselves, but for our clients. So it's a little bit of a vicious cycle. Dana, with the progress you mentioned when it comes to the stigma in black communities and then this increased demand for psychologists who you know, look like the person seeking the therapy. Um, is, is there encouraging signs out there? Do you see any hope that there will be more students who are, are entering a career, black students who want to enter a career uh, in psychology? I think so. It definitely, I think one of the things that's happened is that the idea of what mental health is, has expanded. I think before there was a lot of focus on severe mental illness, things like schizophrenia, things like bipolar disorder. And now people are starting to realize that mental health is a part of everyday life. Everyone has mental health and it might show up as things like anxiety, depression. There's also more focus on uh, racial trauma. So it, it's been really helpful for people to see it as, again, this thing that's just more commonplace and, and everyday. That helps a lot with, with stigma. And it also helps underscore the fact that, you know, people, if we sort of expand our idea of what mental health and mental health disorders look like, we start to recognize that, oh, more people than I thought suffer from mental health concerns. So there really is a need. I touched on racial trauma. The events that have been happening recently with the anti-Blackness, the killing of countless Black people, and then the, the Black Lives Matter movement and other social movements have really highlighted racial trauma, what that is. And people are realizing that the things that Black people in particular go through are, they, there aren't really words to describe some of it, but you can't help but have, start to have a reaction to some of these things and start to need some support. 
Can you go into the idea of racial trauma just one step farther? Because I want to I'm going to put it this way. America watched that horrific, traumatic video of George mm-hmm. Floyd getting killed, getting murdered. And it led to that racial reckoning. And it led to the protests that you mentioned, the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. uh, mainstreaming a bit. And so America, there was trauma felt. But there's mm-hmm. something different that you're discussing when it comes to how it specifically affects a person of color. Can you speak to what that means so that we all understand the idea of racial trauma? Sure. So there is recognition that exposure to racism can actually lead to trauma. And that, that wasn't always something that people knew. When people thought of trauma, they would think of something like sexual assault, uh, a natural disaster, something, you know, on a, a huge, broad scale. But there's a lot of research now showing that everyday occurrences of racism, such as microaggressions, getting pulled over by a a police officer watching these videos of black people getting killed can, especially over time, have a cumulative effect. It can add up and really have negative impacts on people. And when you think about it, it makes sense. If you are constantly feeling as if your life or your dignity is under assault or your community members or people who like you are are under threat, it becomes overwhelming and it really does become traumatic. And some of the the symptoms are, you know, very, they're they're the same as what we see with other types, uh, other types of PTSD or PTSD in general, I should say. So there's the the hypervigilance and hypervigilance is when you're sort of expecting something to happen to you. So you're sort of looking over your shoulder and it's meant to be sort of a self-protective mechanism, but it goes into overdrive. And then there are um, people have nightmares, people have flashbacks, people have anxiety, people have avoidance. They're not able to sometimes not able to go to the places or be in situations that are associated with that trauma. So the part of the challenge is that the the DSM, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is what mental health providers use to diagnose trauma. The DSM is very specific about what uh, qualifies as an event that will cause trauma. And right now, racism is not one of those things. So there's a little bit of a challenge because, again, there is a lot of research showing that exposure to racist events will cause these trauma symptoms, but it might be difficult to diagnose just because of the diagnostic system uh, we have in place right now. Dana, I'd like to take a quick step back and give people some useful information. And this is a question I think that comes up, which is, are there warning signs to know when someone goes from, oh, I'm just angry or I'm upset to actually being clinically depressed or uh, suffering from anxiety where intervention could be really therapeutic? Yes, absolutely. So the short answer is that you want to look at the degree of the depression and, you know, for how long it's happening or, or the symptoms more generally, how long they're happening and what the outcome is, what kinds of difficulties that they're causing. So I'll I'll talk about uh, depression and sadness. Feelings like sadness 
and upset are normal human feelings. They're, they're natural, they're important, and they can give us information about what's going on with us and how we're being impacted. It's okay to feel some of those things some of the time. When someone is so sad that it really starts to impact their ability to do what they need to do, say, for example, they can't get out of bed, they're not interested in eating, they don't want to see friends, don't want to do hobbies, they're starting to have trouble at work, or school, that's when we can start thinking about clinical depression. Uh, that's when it might be something else. And some help might be needed to help the person get out of that. Therapy can be really helpful, but there are also other options. What about the concerns for people who feel those things and it does interrupt their life, but they don't get help? What are the dangers of that? So, it really depends. Uh, so again, I'll, I'll speak about depression. And one of the reasons I speak about depression is it's something that many people are familiar with, but it's also one of the most common mental health concerns in the U.S. I, I don't want to minimize depression in any way because it, it can be devastating. If, you've ex if anyone listening has experienced it, you know what it can feel like. And I like to be open. I've experienced depression. It's not something that I'm ashamed about. It's something that has been a part of me and that I've experienced and have gotten through. But I say that to say that depression is more common than people might think. It's estimated that 15% of the adult population will experience depression at some point uh, in their lifetime. So it's not, again, it's not this rare, shameful thing. It's something that people experience and that people get through. Sometimes it does go away on its own. For a lot of people, it does go away on its own. And that, that really depends on the person, their circumstances, and what precipitated the depression. There are a lot of effective treatments and things that can be done to alleviate it, as I referenced. But for most people, to, to come back to the danger, for most people, it's painful, but it's not life-threatening. It doesn't lead to suicidality for um, most people. I, on the other hand, I will say that major depression, clinical depression, does increase suicide risk uh, when compared to people without depression. Dana, let's finish by going full circle. And you mentioned and we talked about how difficult it can be for someone to find a black therapist. What should a prospective patient do if they're seeking therapy and they want a black therapist but are having a hard time? One thing I will say is that psychologists are not the only option for uh, therapists, thankfully. So there are LMHCs, there are LCSWs. So tapping into that can be, considering those as an option can be great because there are, there are more licensed mental health clinicians or counselors and more licensed clinical social workers. And, you know, as much as I love therapy and I, I advocate that people engage in therapy, it's not the only option. I, I have said that there are lots of options for treating depression and other mental health concerns. There is exercise has been shown to be very helpful. Reaching out and talking to friends, leaning on your community can be great. Mindfulness and meditation are really uh, getting a lot more attention for the positive effects they can have. Faith communities can be helpful. Journaling is a great thing. Gratitude is can be great. 
mental health is a complex thing and, you know, mental health concerns can show up in a lot of ways. And part of what that means is that there are a lot of ways to respond to it. It's a lot of valuable insight. We're so glad we got a chance to talk to you, Dana. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And a big thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast. And thanks to our production team, Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. We'll check back with you next time on The Debrief. Thank you.